Holistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, here I am just uh, getting this podcast out at the end of the week again. I'm beginning to think that uh, January is uh, to the year what Monday is to the week. I just seem to have a hard time getting down to business this year. But some of our fellow saloners who have tended to the business of making a donation to help with the expenses associated with these podcasts are Mark C., Brian T., or uh, maybe I should say from the Cult of Brian, <laughs> which is uh, how you sign your note, uh, and uh, Michael T., uh, also who said, Well, at 20 years of age, I decided to, and I better not say move to where from where, and I have now found myself delivering newspapers from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. every day. Your discussions and recordings have made the time fly by so much faster though sometimes slower because I have to stop the car to put everything together that I just heard. <laughs> I love your talks. Very unbiased and informative. I really appreciate them. Wish I could donate more, but like I said, I deliver newspapers. Thanks, Lorenzo. Much appreciated. That was uh, very cool of you. Uh, you know, I don't expect people to make donations to the salon who are delivering newspapers for a living. In fact, uh, I don't really expect anybody to. And, you know, it's kind of a touchy thing here. I want to be sure to thank people who do make donations, but I don't want to uh, seem like I'm begging for money. Uh, I'll talk more about that next week. I've got uh, something to say about that in my next podcast. But uh, I really appreciate uh, all of your donations, uh, large and small. It's just so kind of you guys. Uh, and uh, we uh, also received a very generous donation from my friend and fellow grandfather, Robert O. And although Robert and I have not yet met in person, I feel as if we're old friends. So thanks for everything, Robert. Uh, and also uh, thank you, Mark, Michael, and uh, the Cult of Brian for being an integral part of the salon. And uh, another fellow saloner I want to thank this week is Tor C., who is the person who sent me the recording we're about to hear. Uh, let me read part of the email in which Tor described this talk. Hey, Lorenzo. Here's the two files of the McKenna talk I mentioned on Facebook. From what I know, it's from an event in California in 1991. You may already be familiar with the introduction by Tim Leary, which was sampled and used on one of those CD tributes to Terrence in the early, and he's got zero zeros, uh, I guess we should call them the noughties? <laughs> I don't know, the aughts? <laughs> Anyhow, he goes on, the name of the talk I have here is Empowering Hope in Dark Times, but I believe it may be floating around on the web under other names. And uh, actually, not too long into this talk, uh, you'll hear Terrence say that the name of this talk is Unfolding the Stone. And uh, the talk is largely about alchemy. But uh, I decided to uh, stick with uh, Tor's uh, recommendation of empowering hope in dark times. And uh, for reasons that I think you'll understand shortly. Anyway, Tor goes on. But I believe it may be floating around on the web under other names, as tends to be the case with many of his talks. I am sure, however, that you haven't podcast this talk before. It was recorded around the time of the big ozone layer scare in 1991, and Terence is noticeably disturbed by this and by the war, giving an astonishing and uplifting talk on making the best out of awful situations. 
using alchemical metaphors and inspiring examples. This is my favorite of all McKenna Talks. I sampled it briefly on the first Sun Blindness record, so am delighted to share this with the tribe. Love, Tor. Well, thank you so much for sending this, Tor, and I agree with you. Uh, this is one of Terrence's more compelling talks. For sure, it's the most positive and uplifting that uh, I think I've ever heard him. And uh, wait till you hear uh, Terrence's litany of all that's going wrong with the world at the time, which was, of course, 1991, when the first of the Bush Wars in the Gulf was underway. Yet you can almost recite the same litany today, but uh, with even more intensity. It uh, certainly makes you think, doesn't it? But let's not listen to me right now. Let's uh, listen first to the now legendary introduction of Terence McKenna by Timothy Leary and uh, then listen to the bard McKenna as he talks about alchemy and his uh, thought that, and I'm quoting here, it's absolutely irrational to not be filled with the fire of consuming hope. You just have to overcome the leveling that we inherit from these empty existential scientific ideas. He's an old friend of all of ours, so I'd like you all to welcome uh, Timothy Leary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, for one, am overjoyed to be here. Uh, This is one of those special, special evenings that we will all treasure. You know, as soon as I drove to that parking lot and I saw people getting out of the car, many of whom were still carrying uniforms and dazed uh, expressions of grateful deadheads. <laughs> so, how many uh, people were at the dead concert? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> And they're coming over later. They're just ending now, so believe me, uh, we'll have an infusion of, uh, <laughs> of wildness there. Terrence McKenna means a great deal to me. Uh, I would say he's one of the five or six most important people on the planet. I can't even think of any others. Uh, <laughs> short-term memory loss, but <laughs> um, I was talking, uh, oh, by the way, I should tell you, uh, Terrence and I keep meeting in the most wonderful, mythic, adventurous uh, places. Uh, I was doing a uh, wild tour through Germany about so a year ago, and we came to Heidelberg, and we were uh, being guested by some people that came right out of Hermann Hesse. I mean, wizards and gnomes and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Heidelberg. And uh, there in a restaurant where I was having a sandwich before performing with some cybernetic people, there was Terence McKenna. And it was just, it was just so perfectly Hesse, Journey to the East. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, so we meet again here tonight. Uh, you know, uh, I was talking to Terence uh, backstage before. Uh, we began, and we, we both agree that uh, what he will be saying tonight has been said over 
and over again at all those high moments in human history when those who have gone within and understood about the brain and the inner inner uh, treasures, uh, we all come back and pretty much say the same thing. The, the problem is, though, that once you say it, uh, you know, the, you can't go on saying it and saying it and saying it. Uh, and when Terence came along a few years ago and was saying what I'd been trying to say, but naturally better, upgraded, uh, up to date, I was so overwhelmed with gratitude, and I publicly thank you for that, uh, Terence. By the way, the role that Terence is playing right now is one that takes not only vision, but it also takes fucking courage. Uh, we were saying backstage that Terence and I are a small group of philosophers who make our living not in the ivory tower, uh, if you call it a living, but uh, uh, just speaking it chanting it, raving it, um, ranting it, um, and uh, no one has ever done it with more, uh, with more poetry and elegance than uh, the speaker tonight. Uh, I'm going to say one more thing and then uh, we will have what we've all been waiting for. Terence reminds us that uh, all human wisdom, all energy uh, comes from our beloved synergetic partners, the vegetable queendom. It all comes from the plants. Now, round of applause <laughs> to the vegetables. Now, we all know that the human body, uh, we have to have food. It comes from vegetables. Uh, we have used vegetables over the years, the essence of vegetables in the form of wood to, to develop fire, gas, oil, and so forth. Oil, by the way, is the number one crack addiction of the... <laughs> modern industrial society but what, what we forget and what we look to Terence for tonight is to be reminded that plants have given us an even more important gift they give us the gift of vision they give us the illumination and throughout human history there are the Eves and the Pandoras usually it's a, it's a woman who takes this wonderful vegetable and gives it to humanity and says uh, be illuminated and now, for our illumination and our, our pleasure, uh, please join me in welcoming Terence McKenna. Good job. Well, I want to thank Tim. That was a wonderful introduction. I'm sure I wouldn't, I know I wouldn't be here tonight if it weren't for Tim Leary. He was the pathfinder. He cut the way through the woods. He gave us all permission to be very much the people that we are tonight. And uh, it's wonderful that one Irishman can hand it on to another and that we can keep it uh, in the bardic tradition. Uh, before I get started, I want to thank a number of people who've put a lot of energy into this event to make it go. Uh, Steve Marshank promoted and organized this. He's been at it for months and months. Uh, Roy, Roy Tuckman, Roy of Hollywood, and Diane. Have, they have supported me and given generously of hundreds and hundreds of hours of airtime 
to put these psychedelic ideas across and believe me you hang your ass out to dry when you take this position Tim mentioned courage nobody has had the kind of courage that Roy and Diane have had to push that message uh, into this town so we salute them and uh, Eric Alley did the wonderful poster he's done them for these events for years he's a beautiful artist uh, Christian Duffy and Jim Messix are here to see that you find your seat and stay in it and uh, we thank them for that but whether or not the clearing of the rainforest is halted the loss of folk medicinal knowledge on the part of these tribal societies that have lived in balance and equilibrium and respect with nature for millennia that is tragically going there's no question about it because you can't put people into a museum diorama and ask them to parade around in jock straps while the rest of us drive BMWs they move into the cities these people work in the sawmills they take jobs in the tourist industry and 25 50,000 years of medical knowledge is lost and Tim did homage to the vegetables even in today's high-tech world fully 75% of all the drugs prescription drugs other kinds of drugs on the market above ground underground come from plants this is a priceless reservoir of uh, complex chemistry but it's meaningless unless the human experiences the human lore is preserved and this is what botanical dimensions is about we have collectors uh, in Peru in other parts of the world and we bring seeds rootstock living plants to Hawaii and there these things are grown as in a living library toward the day when a more enlightened society will have the wisdom and the good sense to uh, team up with the vegetable world and create a more humane medicine a more humane religion that has some real life and light in it so that's what we're doing out there any help any of you can give us uh, we're deeply appreciative spread the word uh, since we began this project many uh, imitators have sprung up and this was our intent and our hope and great good work is being done uh, so please support the conservation of folk botanical and medical knowledge so then before I dig into this let me just explain how it'll work I'll talk for a while then there'll be an intermission and then we'll come back and given however much time is left over why there'll be a, a Q&A and, and we'll have a mic for you to line up behind okay all right first of all thank you all for being here I know we're up against the Grateful Dead my favorite band uh, I'm gonna quote them repeatedly it's a thousand to one chance that this would happen and it just shows the world is stranger than you can suppose so uh, 
the name of this talk is Unfolding the Stone. And I wanted to talk about this. It's a departure for me because I think we've just been through a real hammering over the past 10 months. I mean, if you've still got your optimism intact, and believe me, I do, uh, you've been through the fire. This has not been an easy 10 months for uh, the people of this planet or the planet itself. And so I want to sort of reach back tonight and invoke a vanished tradition, get to the heart of it, and try to show how we can bring this forward in our lives to empower hope in the most dark of situations. And in fact, to even make these dark situations the raw material of a clearer, stronger hope than might ordinarily be the case. A few days ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he wanted to tell me the story of sitting in the presence of a 104-year-old Vietnamese monk. And the guy had basically kept his mouth shut, the monk, hadn't said much around the monastery where he just sort of cleans up. But then he announced he wanted to talk about meditation. And he opened his remarks by saying, we are all luminous beings. Why then do we not appear before each other radiant in our illumination? And this is the conundrum of life. This is the problem. Uh, it was T.S. Eliot who said, between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. And why is that? As psychedelic people, this is the problem that we grapple with in our own lives and when we look out at the world. You've heard me say many times, we have the vision, we have the money, we have the technology, but why can we not then appear before each other as radiantly luminous beings? And why cannot we reclaim our planet from toxification, disease, overpopulation, bonehead politics? You know the list. What's the hang-up here? What is the problem? Why is perfection so distant? Well, what I've learned from life and vegetables and travel and books can be summed up in two Greek words. It's the central message of, of the philosopher Heraclitus. And he was always my favorite philosopher, but whenever I would read about him, he was called the crying philosopher. And I had to live to be 44 years old to understand the poignancy of Heraclitus' message. He said, in a nutshell, Pontit Reyes, all flows, all flows, nothing lasts, nothing is permanent. And this is the hardest message life has to teach. Because what it says is, your joy is transient, your anguish is transient, 
your fortune, your home, your dream, your moments of great uh, ecstasy, your moments of great insight, your moments of great empowerment, everything is flowing through your hands at the moment that you are aware of it. William Blake, who in a way set this engine going a couple of centuries ago, said, <clears throat> what is the price of experience? Is it bought for a song or wisdom for a dance in the street? No. It is bought with all that a man has. His wife, his home, his children. Now this is not a pessimistic message and William Blake was not a pessimistic guy. He was the same guy who told us that if we could but cleanse the doors of perception we would perceive the world as it is, infinite, in a grain of sand. How can we take this poignancy, this sense of impermanence and weld it into something which is paradoxically indestructible and has meaning in our lives and gives us not only the strength to carry on but the power to be exemplars the power to stand up before other people and let them then feel the power of vision in the paradox of permanence in the face of the need for indestructibility well, to answer that question, I felt that we had to leave the narrow confines of 20th century thinking, and we had to reach back into the byways of human thought that have been, by most of us, somewhat passed over and forgotten, because after all, modern life makes great demands on us. It's enough to just keep your checkbook balanced and your insurance paid. We can't all spend our time delving in the libraries of, uh, of the noetic and Gnostic and Hermetic and magical traditions. But I thought it was worthwhile to talk to you about this tonight because we have been through such a difficult ten months. And it was also Heraclitus, the all flows guy, who said, all is war, all is war. And what he meant was, Everything occurs in the presence of its opposite, and out of that there is generated the friction, the heat, and the light that all comes together in an indissoluble package as part of life. So what I want to talk to you about tonight, and how it relates to unfolding the stone, is the notion of alchemy of all things. Alchemy, as I'm sure many of you know, is really the secret tradition of the redemption of spirit from matter. But many of you may imagine that alchemy is simply a, a discredited pre-scientific obsession of unbalanced minds interested in changing base metals into gold, lead into the stuff of commerce. This is the benighted reputation that alchemy has acquired in a century so given over to the literal and the material and the non-spiritual 
that it's lost all touch with the adumbrations of meaning that vibrate behind uh, the perceptions of the alchemists. The central conception of alchemy is the conception of the philosopher's stone. What is it? It's the universal panacea at the end of time. It's the chocolate cake that your mother made once a week when you were a child. The panis supersubstantialis. It's all things to all men and all women. If you are hungry, you eat it. If you're dirty, you shower under it. If you need to go somewhere, you sit on it and you fly there. If you have a question, it answers it. It's something that the human mind senses in itself and related to, invoked, worshipped over centuries before the slow rise of the patriarchy and rationalism and materialism turned it into a myth, a fairy tale. It is not a myth or a fairy tale. It is the burning primary reality that lies behind the dross of appearances. Alchemy is based on a philosophy called Hermeticism that was developed in the first and second centuries by Gnostic thinkers, Greeks, Jews, people inside the Roman Empire as it was beginning to show the first signs of degradation and decay, who felt a profound disaffection with their world. A disaffection that on the scale of those times was as profound as our own existential disaffection. And the Hermetic philosophers drew back from the rise of Christianity with its doctrine of the fall of man and original sin and the stain of Adam and Eve and that whole thing and took a different tack and made two points which I think we need to recover and live out for ourselves. And the first point was that man, which means men and women, human beings, are divine beings, not lower than the angels, higher than the angels. The message of the alchemical and hermetic thinkers and the corpus hermeticum actually uses the phrase, man is God's brother. We have no idea what it would mean in our own lives if we could throw off the notion of ourselves as fallen beings. We are not fallen beings. When you take into your life the gnosis of the light-filled vegetables, the psychedelic plants that have stabilized the sane societies of this world for millennia, the first message that comes to you is you are a divine being. You matter. You count. You come from realms of unimaginable power and light and you will return to those realms. The second point that these philosophers wanted to make was that fate can be overcome. Fate can be overcome. Now, for the Greco-Hellenic world, what that meant was 
the starry engines of the machinery of fate that they saw strewn across the night sky because they were uh, intensely aware of the power of the zodiac, the stellar shells inhabited by demons that extended out to the unimaginable imperium of the All-Father that was beyond fate. And into that world of astrological fatedness, which is such a strong idea for the Greek mind, the Hermeticists announced fate can be overcome. And they had a novel answer for how this could be done. It can be done through magic a word not often enough heard in the present world. The overcoming of fate is achieved through magic. And then the stellar machinery becomes not an invasive force into one's life, but an empowering force. Now, some of us may believe in astrology and some of us may not. We are all strongly influenced by the notion of fate of our powerlessness in an existential world. Jean-Paul Sartre said nature is mute and we embedded in the media-dense, message-dense, programming-dense matrix of these hyper-societies that we have created often feel, I think, like hapless atoms running endlessly according to the blueprints and programs of unseen masters whether it's the banking industry, Madison Avenue, whoever, we tend to disempower ourselves. We tend to believe that we don't matter. And in the act of taking that idea to ourselves, we give everything away to somebody else, to something else. So the rebirth of a sense of the stone and its possibility within each of us entails these two ideas our divinity and our power to overcome fate. There is no uh, inevitability in our lives unless we submit to the idea of inevitability and then give ourselves over to it. Okay. I wish there were more jokes, but it's just been such a tough go. In a tough go, I have to tell you. Where can we look in the world to see some confirmation of what I'm saying? How can we draw it down from being, you know, an airy fairy rap of a, a bardic Irishman? Well, I think that the place to look is history. Now, if you go to the academies, to those ivory towers that Tim was talking about, and ask, what is history? They will tell you that it's a random walk, an endlessly pointless fluctuation. Empires rise and fall, migrations of people come and go, that it is essentially meaningless. I don't believe this. I don't even think there's strong evidence for it. Because what I perceive when I look at the world, not only the world of history, but the world of nature which, out of which history has emerged, I see novelty, something wonderful, maddening, paradoxical, and ever-increasing, 
ever more conserved. Every iota of novelty that comes into existence is somehow saved and passed on. That's why when we uh, walk or drive down Melrose, we see Egyptian fashion motifs, we see fashion statements drawn from the 14th century, the 2nd century, Assyria, Egypt, uh, Angkor Wat. All of the novelty of history coalesces in the living moment. It's always been that way. Every society in the moment of its existence has lived as a resonance, a completion, and uh, a distillation, good alchemical word, a distillation of what has preceded before. And so the alchemical idea that spirit can be redeemed from matter begins to get teeth when you connect the idea of spirit up to the idea of novelty, which has not ordinarily been done. But, you know, novelty is the life of the party, and the life of the party is to be high-spirited. And this is what we need to focus on as the thread in the dark labyrinth of the prison of the material world that can lead us back to the light. The universe is an engine for the production of novelty. It always has been since the first moment of the Big Bang 20, 25 billion years ago. Simpler states have been replaced by more complex states which have then set the stage for yet greater complexity. Well, the drift of this then is that the emergence of language and tools and culture and higher ideals like courage and love and self-sacrifice, these are not uh, flukes, sports, mistakes. These are further steps along the way in the process of the great alchemical furnace of being heating and casting and dissolving and recasting and purifying and recasting alchemical gold. And so hard as the world may appear, uh, dark as the hour may appear, in reality we exist in a dimension of greater opportunity greater freedom, greater possibility than has ever been. The challenge then is to not drop the ball, is to know this and to act on it and to slough off all the leeches and backhandlers and weasels and crypto-fascists who want to deny that and turn man into a machine for their own purposes. Alchemy has always perceived this and has delineated stages in the transformational process. And these stages uh, are uh, worth talking about, not in the details, but in, in the two bipolar states which define this. They used a bastard Latin and they called them the negredo, and the albedo. The negredo is the precondition for transformation. And what is it? It's shit. It's detritus. It's flotsam. 
It's debris. It's being HIV positive. It's being deep into your fourth marriage and sinking fast. It's bankruptcy. It's, uh, you know, serum hepatitis. It's the inevitable dark night of the soul that comes upon us. And these dark nights of the soul come upon all of us. Nobody gets through this world without a little dung raining down on them. Believe me. I mean, you may evade it for decades, but then there will be a knock on the door. You know, it's said that uh, the millstones of fate grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. So what do we do with that? Well, the answer is, we welcome it. This is what the alchemists awaited. The negredo, the prima materia, the dark matter, the chaos, the chaos that is the precondition then for redemption. And God knows we've got lots of chaos right now. I mean, we have war, famine, revolution, millions of homeless people on the move. The nation state is dissolving. The relief agencies of the world can't keep up. The various... Uh, uh, secret societies, mafias and cabals that have always tried to tie us into chains, they're all working overtime. We are in the negredo condition. Hallelujah. This means, this means that the kissing has to stop, but the fun can begin, the real fun. The other end of this bipolar condition in alchemy was called the albedo, or albedo, depending on whether or not you came from a coal mining town in Colorado like I did. <laughs> the albedo, the whitening. And that means that out of the chaos can come a new beginning, a new reality, a new hope. And then the process is one of, and the, you see these alchemists existed in an, uh, a philosophically more naive, we quote, more naive world than we do. So they actually projected onto the processes of matter their own interior psychic condition. So they did work with matter and fire and furnaces and retorts. And what they would do is they would take... Uh, the primal materia, lead or excrement or something else, and then they would heat it and turn it to ash and then calcinate the ash or pour solvents through the ash and get an extract and then heat that and sublimate it. And out of this, almost as a footnote, came modern chemistry. But that was not the important side of it. The important side of it was that they were projecting mental states onto the swirling retorts of their laboratory. It was like a magical mirror for them. It was, in fact, dare we say the P word, it was psychedelic. What psychedelic means is getting your mind out in front of you by whatever means necessary so that you can relate to it as a thing in the world and then work upon it. So from the negredo 
to the albedo there were a series of uh, these stages now I said a few minutes ago that magic was the key and by magic I mean the reclaiming and the reconstruction of language to a sufficient degree that it becomes at first possible then probable then inevitable to each one of us that miracles can happen miracles can happen the Grateful Dead have a song we need a miracle every day we do need a miracle every day well is that too tall an order uh, I don't think so I don't think so uh, years ago one of these talking vegetables said to me <laughs> said mind conjures miracles out of time out of time time is the prima materia on which the alchemical process works the alchemists uh, again in their naive way believed that uh, precious metals diamonds gold sapphires actually grew in the earth because for this alchemical point of view everything was alive and my friend Rupert Sheldrake is leading the charge to create a new birth of that perception inside science the idea that nature all of nature is alive not simply organic cellular nature but that the earth itself is a living being so mind conjures miracles out of time and the proof that this can be done and it's an incontrovertible proof and I defy any naysayer or bring down to overcome it is ourselves we are the proof that mind can conjure miracles out of time if it weren't for us there would just be birds and foxes and coral reefs and glaciers but nature was not content with that level of novelty a million years ago a hundred thousand years ago nature grew discontented and said you know let's raise the ante let's go to higher stakes poker in this planetary game let the monkeys speak <laughs> let them build fires let them elaborate tools let them march forward onto the stage of creation and remember I said the hermetic faith was that humankind was the brother could act as the brothers and sisters of God not moats in God's creation but co-partners in the invocation out of being of yet greater novelty why for play for fun just the cosmic madness of it all the pure cussedness of it all uh, to raise the stakes higher and higher and higher now I keep going back to this thing of can it be done because I want to convince you because I'm so certain uh, I love Herman Melville and his rhetoric and friends of the whale bear with me uh, 
For Herman Melville, the whale was not the endangered creature it is today. It was uh, the dark cosmic god of Christianity that haunts us and tries to pull us down. And there's a wonderful speech in Moby Dick where Starbuck, the first mate, you remember, wimpy little Starbuck, he stood for Christian right reason. And he says to Captain Ahab, to seek revenge on a dumb brute seems blasphemy. And Ahab says, blasphemy, Starbuck? Speak not to me of blasphemy. I would strike out the sun if it insulted me. For could it do that, then could I do the other. For there is ever a sort of fair play. And that's the point of that rap. There is a sort of fair play. You've been told from the cradle that the deck was stacked against you. Fall of man, original sin, so forth and so on. It's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. There is a sort of fair play. And if you can get in touch with that in your life, you know, when Muhammad wouldn't come to the mountain, the mountain came to Muhammad. That's fair play. <laughs> and if you can have that perception, the world will begin to work for you. It will begin to move toward you as the mountain moved toward Muhammad. The mushroom said to me once, uh, nature loves courage. Nature loves courage. And I said, what's the payoff on that? And it said, it shows you that it loves courage because it will remove obstacles. You make the commitment and nature will respond to that commitment by removing impossible obstacles. Dream the impossible dream and the world will not grind you under. It will lift you up. This is the trick. This is what all these uh, uh, teachers and philosophers who really counted, who really touched the alchemical gold, this is what they understood. This is the shamanic dance in the waterfall. This is how magic is done. It's done by hurling yourself into the abyss and discovering that it's a feather bed. And there's no other way to do it. Uh, this is why I have always taken the position that as modern people, you know, we can't go out and uh, set armies marching or launch religions and who would want to anyhow. But to the people who say adventure has fled, it's all humdrum. I just know, you know, that they have forgotten the five grams of psilocybin sitting in their refrigerator. <laughs> I mean, Magellan may have had excitement rounding the horn, but you in your living room later tonight can put him in the shade if you have the courage to do the things that are necessary to do. And we know what they are. And, of course, the first thing to do is to tell society to fuck off because they don't know what's going on. This is a matter between the person and the plant. The person and the planet. And 
all the detritus of history, all the games that people have tried to lay on you. You know, they just want to get you down in the ditch that they're in. We know this because Aboriginal societies have never broken the faith. The living gnosis is still there. Not for people who paint themselves blue and dance around buck naked, but for us as well. But it takes an act of courage. Not a weekend at Esalen. Uh, not a, a, a trip to the ashram where, where they tell you that if you'll sweep up for a dozen years, then they'll hand on a whammy. No. It, it, the speed with which you can reach death is under 45 seconds if you know where the elevator shaft is. And you do. You do. I don't have to tell you. I've been telling you. Uh, well, so, uh, there's one more alchemical metaphor or stage that I want to mention here. Uh, because I think it, it refers to this psychedelic possibility. Not all the alchemists included this stage in their, in their uh, recensions of the work. But for me, I think it's central. Again, in their church, uh, bastardized church Latin, they called it the cauda pavones, the peacock's tail. Now, the physical basis of this is, if you've ever played around with metal and fire, you know that there are certain metals that when they pass to a certain temperature range, uh, iridescent colors play across the surface and sometimes even freeze. And in uh, uh, the glazing of pottery at low temperatures in Raku, what these pottery masters are aiming for are these wonderful iridescent surfaces that play across the glaze and then can be frozen into it. Well, this is the peacock's tail. And uh, in alchemy, this was thought to precede the final whitening, the passage into the pure, uh, the goal, really. And rather than see the present world as exclusively a veil of tears and a black prison. And none of these metaphors are mutually exclusive. You see, the alchemist, the great strength of alchemical thinking and the way in which it is completely antithetical to science, and in fact why science has so much contempt for it, is because the alchemist had the wisdom to see that everything occurs in the presence of its opposite. That it's not either or, it's both and. They call this the coincidencia oppositorum, the, co the coincidence of opposites, the union of opposites. This is a great truth, because I think all of us live under the rubrics of, am I good, am I bad, am I lazy, am I obsessed, and the answer is that it is never one or the other. It does a tremendous injustice to being to ignore the union of opposites. Now, science, in order to do its work, 
which is essentially a technological work, not a deep philosophical work. It's a minor art science. That's all it is. It's a minor art. It's the art of the physically possible. But it has presumed to be the arbiter of all thought, all feeling, all worth. My God, the, the hubris of René Descartes to divide the world into the primary and secondary qualities. And what are the primary qualities? Motion, uh, 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 mass, spin, momentum. And what are the secondary qualities? Color, feeling, taste, tactility. It tells you that you're nothing. You never touch reality. You live in that world of sense and therefore can only aspire to the real world through some kind of mathematical disembowelment of your own, what your own body, what your own feelings are telling you. So in the cow de Pavones, the peacock's tail, this is where the contradictions meet and generate heat and light and an excruciating sense of poignancy and meaning and identity. And our world, as we experience it tonight, is quintessentially, another good alchemical word, is quintessentially that coincidentia appositorum. Now, where do we meet this most dramatically in our own lives? I think we meet it in uh, the phenomenon of birth. Of birth. If you had just parked your flying saucer in the bushes and uh, came from a world where sexuality was unknown and people were grown in vats or something, and you came upon a woman in the act of giving birth, it would appear to be a catastrophe in progress, a tragedy at the limit of tragedy. Blood is being shed, anguish is on the surface, real agony pervades the situation. And yet, and yet, nature in her wisdom has bound pain and ecstasy, death and completion, regeneration and dissolution into that experience in such an indissoluble fashion that no woman can miss the point. No woman can miss the point. Unfortunately, men have traditionally averted their eyes. This has gone on in a hut at the edge of the village. Nobody wanted to be there. Maybe the shaman would be there, but he was loaded in order to be there. And the mystery of mysteries go on, goes on outside the sight of men. Now, in our world, we are caught in this kind of metaphor, a cosmic birth, a birth of planetary scale is underway. Uh, there is agony. There is no doubt about it. I remember an embryologist who once taught me pointed out that the fetus in the womb is literally sculpted by the hand of death. That the immature hand of the fetal organism is a webbed claw and that it isn't that the flesh retracts 
to form the human hand. It's that the cells in between die and slough off into the amniotic fluid and are carried away. The, the fetal child is literally sculpted into life by the hand of death. And our world is in this kind of a circumstance. There are no rational solutions at this point. We are now in the hands of the miracle makers, the shamans, the mind of the planet, the life of the ocean, and the atmosphere. And it's going to get tougher. And so we have to forge the indestructible adamantine stone of alchemical hope because heavier challenges lie ahead. A uh, hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, I cannot but imagine that this planet will be empty of human beings. Not because we have become extinct, but because we have gone to our fate. And it's unimaginable at this moment because we are in the planetary birth canal. We are at the peak of transition right now. And the walls are literally closing in. We are being suffocated. We are fighting like a strangled man to try and save ourselves. And yet we have to believe and I invite you to educate yourself about the history of the planet. There is no reason not to believe that we will come through. We will come through. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is a meaning to history, but it's an alchemical meaning. History is a vast alchemical engine for the forging of an alchemical humanity. And I don't have the answers, believe me. I don't know whether we go to another star, whether we become eight angstroms high and all live in a block of metal underneath Mount Everest, whether we march off to the heart of the sun. The scenarios are endless because the human imagination has such a power to bootstrap itself to higher and higher levels. What would Paleolithic man have made of the, the religion of Pharaonic Egypt? What would the pharaohs have made of the engines of war and hydraulic machinery created by the Romans? What would the Gothic uh, scholastic uh, enlightenment have made of the age of cybernetics, psychedelics, and virtual reality? The imagination is the alchemical deus ex machina that can lift us out of time, out of the negredo of history, and into higher and higher and higher states of being. Now, there is no reason to simply then ride along in this process, because another perception of the alchemist that is central to getting this all lined up so that it works is the idea of the macrocosm and the microcosm. What does that mean? It means that the world truly is fractal in the most profound sense, meaning that what is going on on some very large scale is condensed, intensified, and recapitulated 
on smaller scales so that the dynamics of a love affair are the dynamics of an empire. Both are the dynamics of the evolution, expansion, and extinction of a species. There is only one way that things can happen. And whether we're talking about microphysical events or the life of an entire solar system, the curve of binding energy is going to be the same. So that means that this redemption of spirit from matter that is the historical process that we are embedded in, we can do our part by working on our small section of this, which is ourself. This is why alchemy was so fascinating to the Jungian uh, psychologists, because they saw that this work of redeeming spirit from matter is nothing more than the work of redeeming the self from the contaminated dross of the traumatized and damaged psyche that we each inherit from our passage through the parental um, shit pile. We each have that gift to deal with. That negredo is within ourselves. And this is why we're in therapy, and this is why we take psychedelics and meditate or do whatever we do, because we all have this dross within us, and this is a great gift. It means that we can begin consciously the process of distillation and sublimation and casting of ourselves into that golden being, that luminous creature that this 104-year-old Vietnamese monk uh, sensed and evoked to, to my friend. But it's more than that. We do that, we do that alchemical work to perfect our own sense of the union of opposites, our own sense of the presence of the living alchemical stone within, in order that we may then participate, act in, and be part of the transformation of the planet. And it is an immense transformation. And there is no reason to doubt it, because the emergence of organic life from what preceded it is as dramatic a miracle as anyone could imagine. The emergence of language from mute bestiality, which is only a hundred thousand years in the past, is as dramatic a miracle as anyone could imagine. The emergence of a planet instantaneously unified by electricity and media is, and this is only 50, 60 years in our past, it's still going on, is as dramatic a miracle as anyone could imagine. It's absolutely irrational to not be filled with the fire of consuming hope. You just have to overcome the leveling that we inherit from these empty existential scientific ideas. And when we do that and lift our eyes to the real living, spiritually uh, empowered reality that exists in nature, in society, in our lover, in ourselves, then you see that the peacock's tail, the cow de pavones, is a, a transcendental object at the end of time. 
an enormous, uh, unspeakable something that beckons across the historical landscape, that casts an enormous shadow that reaches clear back to the earliest moments of the universe, that we have always been in the grip of that iridescent, strange attractor. It has propelled our poetry, our art, our best moments have always been when a tiny scintilla, another good alchemical word, a tiny spark of that alchemical completion burned for a moment in our mind, in our life, in our perception. And we occupy a special position in regard to this. Millions, thousands of generations of human beings have come and gone and could only glimpse this in the ecstasy of eroticism and psychedelic empowerment and ritual magic. But we are the last people. Beyond us lies the mystery. If we have but the courage to move forward into that abyss, to believe that nature will reward the dreamer, then we can complete that wonderful Irish toast which says, may you be alive at the end of the world. Because it's that close. It cannot wander much longer. All of the preconditions have been, been met and the peacock's tail grows daily whiter and more radiant and more brilliant as we sense now, breaking into our dreams, breaking into our waking lives, the presence of this attractor. It has always given people meaning, but we are the privileged inheritors of that meaning, and we have then the privilege of putting it all together in one piece and standing ready at the end of history to go into the mystery and be completed. So that's the end of my song. Okay, let's have some questions here. Hi. Hi. Uh, once one has acquired the bundle weed, how does he consume it? Technical questions here. Detail freaks, cooks, and recipe mongers. Um, for the benefit of those not initiated into this, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Aboriginal human beings have searched the world for psychedelic sources and have been, such as in the Amazon, very successful, but not uh, exhaustively successful. So that it's recently become known uh, in the phytochemical literature that a plant, Desmanthus elenoiensis, which this gentleman is referring to, the Illinois bundle weed, appears to have the, one of the highest concentrations of dimethyltryptamine of any plant that's been looked at, and it has no history of Aboriginal usage. And uh, the question is how to activate this into a usable psychedelic. Uh, probably uh, 
the way to do it would be to attempt to create an analog to the South American drug, plant drug, ayahuasca, by combining the bundle weed with a North American source of a beta-carboline, such as harmine, which is what's in ayahuasca, and that would activate it. And the obvious candidate for that would be uh, a uh, succulent plant that grows in the deserts of New Mexico and uh, uh, Nevada, Pagamon harmala. And Pagamon harmala combined with Desmanthus alanoensis in the correct proportions would probably deliver a stunning psychedelic experience. Would you eat it or, or smoke it? Oh, drinking, you would you boil drink? them together. No, smoking you can't. It's too diffuse in these things. No, you would uh, you would perform an alchemy. You would boil the two for many hours in a large volume of water, pour off the wash, add new water, boil more hours, pour off the wash, combine the two fractions, get rid of the physical material, and drive it down until it looks like thick coffee. But, you know... Don't be consumed by your uh, alchemical investigations. I mean, proceed carefully with this stuff because it's going to work if you get it right. In, in the absence of a scale, how might one measure five grams of psilocybin, dry psilocybin? Spring for the scale. <laughs> And I, I don't like these big events because I don't like sitting up here in the light and looking out over the sea of faces. I'm against guruism, leader trips. And, and anyway, the whole point of this message has to be that it's for everybody. Nobody is special. If it can only happen to some kind of elect, then it's got no impact no ability to save the planet it's a human mystery it doesn't belong to the intelligentsia it doesn't belong to the wealthy it doesn't belong to the Irish regardless of how we kid around about that it's, uh, it's got to be for everybody so take this man seriously here he is second year in a row pleading for community <laughs> somebody take him to dinner and uh, community is the backbone of the thing when i first started doing this one of the most empowering experiences that i could have after talking to a crowd like this is someone would come up afterwards and say to me i thought i was crazy till i talked to you till i heard you talk and what they meant was that they had done psychedelics in the 60s and they had seen the elves and the machinery of joy but then it had all other people had turned to market analysis and international banking and what have you and it all seemed to flow away and so people need to find like-minded people Yeah, Terence, I was interested in your concept of fate. It reminded me of a quote by Jung where he says that fate is uh, doing willingly that which I must do. And I was wondering about this concept of fate. You were talking about the Greeks thought of fate as, as the one thing that you couldn't go beyond. You know, even, even Zeus himself was terrified of the fate, the, Mo- the Moira. And the idea of not being able to pass beyond the, the physical body, not being able to pass beyond boundaries, 
uh, that we are bounded by faith, even the gods themselves. And yet you were talking about the concept of the alchemist believing about going beyond one's faith. I find this idea very delicious. Um, you know, I thought maybe you could elaborate on the idea of going beyond one's faith or this kind of freedom in the... Yes, the, the way they did it, as I briefly indicated but didn't get into, was through magic. And the kind of magic was uh, the following. It was the style of the Renaissance magic that developed in the wake of the translation of this hermetic corpus. It Previously, magic had been sort of as the cartoon image we have of it, the lonely wizard off in the woods grinding up his potions and toads or that sort of thing. Uh, but in the Renaissance, in the courts of the, Demi of, of, uh, the, Demi the Medici court, uh, people like Marcello Facino and uh, Campanello and these people took the idea of uh, astrological associations, in other words, that uh, plants and minerals and odors and this sort of thing could all be associated to given zodiacal signs and they created a theatrical style of magic, uh, a ceremonial magic where by, uh, say you wanted to counteract a Saturn aspect of some sort, well then by choosing the opposite, uh, the herbs and gems and perfumes associated with the opposite sort of situation and gathering them to you, you could make a model of the universe, a new model of the universe. And they did this in round rooms and built orreries and practiced a kind of ceremonial magic that made them then the companions of princes. And the, the dark figure of the lonely magician in the woods was replaced by the Renaissance magus who was manipulating political realities, counseling popes, and taking magical power into his hands specifically for the purpose of counteracting the machinery of fate. It had to do with this idea of if, if fate is decreed by God's cosmos, but man is the co-creator with God, then by setting up a magical microcosm, the ordinary asterisms, the ordinary influences of astrology can be deflected. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, uh, Dame Frances Yates wrote a wonderful book called uh, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition. And there's another book by D.P. Walker called uh, Demonic and Spiritual Magic from Facino to Campanella. Uh, these are not easy books to find. Try the Bodhi Tree and William and Victoria Daly down on Melrose can help you out. If they were easy to find, what fun would it be? I mean, part of the quest is getting this stuff together. But that's the basic theory of Renaissance magic, is to create a microcosm to counter the fatalistic machinery of the macrocosm. I just want to leave you with one story because it sort of fills out the theme um, and shows how peculiarly the spirit moves and how the coincidentia positorum is present in so many unexpected situations. 
I think somewhere in the body of my talk I got to dig in at Cartesian logic or Cartesian rationalism. As you know, modern scientific materialism was founded by René Descartes, a French philosopher of uh, the 17th century. But what the historians of science have been at great pains to keep from view is the following story, which is attested to in Descartes' own journal. When he was a young man of about 22 years old, he decided to go soldiering and wenching around Europe, which was something young men of that era did. And he joined a Habsburg army, which was on a mission to lay siege to the city of Prague in Bohemia to suppress uh, uh, what was essentially an alchemical revival. I won't go into the details, but a young prince of the Northern Leagues and his queen, who was the daughter of James of England and was named Elizabeth after her grandmother, had managed to gain control of the empire, had been elected, in fact. He was called Frederick the Elector Palatine. And this Habsburg army was sent to destroy this Protestant alchemical reformation. And it did so, laid siege to the city, and killed this young man and his queen fled to the Hague and then they retreated across Germany and on uh, I believe it was the 17th of August of, of that year which was 1619 the beginning year of the Thirty Years War they made camp at Ulm in southern Germany and just as an aside Ulm later was the birthplace of Albert Einstein but that night Descartes had a dream and the dream in the dream a radiant angel appeared to him and said the conquest of nature is to be achieved through number and measure and in that moment René Descartes went from being a nobody to being the founder of modern science. Modern science was founded at the direction of an angel and the angel showed how it was and to this day modern science has made all of its strides through the application of number, mathematical analysis and measure. That is the secret of the scientific conquest of nature. And it's a secret that was imparted to René Descartes by an angelic entity. So I'd like you to leave this evening wondering, who do we work for? <laughs> and how does it work? Thank you very, very much. Good night. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, who do you work for? Uh, who do we work for? Actually, uh, I think I've got an answer to that question, but uh, you'll have to wait for my next book. <laughs> it's a long answer. You know, uh, carrying on with Terence's idea that we heard just now of moving beyond fate with a kind of magic... 
got me to thinking that as a species, perhaps, we can move beyond our fate of overconsuming and polluting ourselves into extinction. Perhaps we can use the magic of this marvelous electronic nervous system we now have evolved to move beyond the fate of a tightly controlled hierarchical society and into more of a human uh, hyperarchical web of interconnectivity that is more in resonance with the voice of the planet. Or uh, something like that, huh? <laughs> now, I was going to read part of an email from Cameron Adams that he sent in response to last week's program, but I'm going to save that for my next podcast, uh, which I'll talk about uh, some of my ideas about university education in general and uh, the floating salons that KMO and Neil Kramer have started. So I'll hold Cameron's comments and uh, read them next week in a better context. But here is something that came in from Joe Green Go that uh, you may be interested in. He writes, Hello, Lorenzo. I just wanted to let you know that I recast your talk, Living Under the Radar, Surviving in a Control Culture, on my most recent episode. It has always been one of my favorite talks on the salon and thought it should see the light again since it's hidden away at the end of a very old episode. Best wishes and keep up the excellent work. Oh, and thanks for your reversal on your no leery policy a few years ago. And I've listened to the Genesis generation four or five times now, and it's marvelous. I so desperately hope that there is a lot of truth to much of it, notably the undercover agents of this community. Thanks a million, Lorenzo. All the best for 2010. Blessings, Joe Greenjo. And uh, he's got a new podcast. It's at florafungiandfuture.podomatic.com. And I'll put a link there. Uh, He's up to seven episodes already. And like I tell everyone who sends me a link to their new podcast, I look forward to hearing uh, your episode number 10 because, (laughs) uh, unfortunately, not many people make it up to their 10th program. And uh, I think we're all looking for longevity in our podcast. Plus, by the 10th or 20th program, you uh, finally get the hang of it a little better. To tell the truth, I dearly would like to take down my first 50 or so programs because they sound so cheesy to me. But uh, for now, I'm leaving them up there. Uh, I suppose at some point the RSS feeds that iTunes accept will be limited in uh, length. Uh, Hopefully not, but you never know. So I'm going to leave everything up there for now. And uh, those of you that have podcasts, and new podcasts in particular, uh, once you get uh, a number of episodes up there under your belt, uh, I'll be happy to help promote them. Uh, I haven't been too good about that lately. I know I mainly talk about KMO and uh, all of them over on the Dopamine Network, but... uh, Oh, gee, you know, there's Diet Soap, there's Biota, uh, there's Tom Barbelay's, uh, uh, Ape Reality, uh, there's, uh, oh, I wish I could think of them all off the top of my head right now, but there's a long list of them. And, uh, you should search around and, uh, go over to the girlreport.com forums and look at, uh, some of the reports of, uh, podcasts over there. I think you'll see that it's a huge world out here now. Anyhow, uh, another email comes from fellow saloner and visionary artist Leo Plaw, who says in part, Hi, Lorenzo. This year is off to a good, if not busy, start. You may or may not know about some big things that are happening. 2010 is shaping up to be a year of coming together as a community and building our visions. January is not even finished, and I have my artwork in two group shows. 
The first was the Temple of Visions in L.A., and uh, it's a long link, and I'll put it in our program notes for today's program. The second is a group show that I've organized here in Berlin with two friends of mine, Dennis Konstantin and Mika Kalori-Krebs, and uh, I'll link to that announcement as well. This exhibition marks an important milestone. For a long time, we have looked to other places where the action is at. Now we will set the gears in motion and start with our own fantastic and visionary art events here in Berlin. A part of this greater plan to create more opportunities for artwork is the publication of a catalog of our paintings. It's the first book I've designed and printed, and uh, I'll also uh, provide a link where you can uh, view uh, an interactive uh, preview of the book, which is uh, filled with images that I find particularly compelling. Leo goes on, The exhibition and the book are a start of more such projects in the near future. We are planning to expand it to include other artists and create more opportunities for them. I'm always happy to hear your feedback, hoping your year is off to a good start, too. Leo Plaw, Visionary Fine Art, and uh, you can find him at leoplaw.com. So uh, if you want to see some art that uh, really inspires me, uh, surf by Leo's websites and uh, see what you think. And I'm sure he would appreciate your comments also. Now, one last email for today comes from Espen in Norway, who says, Dear Lorenzo, thank you for being. You are a true gentleman, and I believe that the example you set through your compassionate, insightful, respectful, humble, yet critical thoughts and comments will serve as a strong inspiration for many generations ahead of what it means to be a good person. You have brought me the most enlightening days at work as I surely sparkle while listening to the salon in my car while at work in... Oh, I can't pronounce the name of this town, but it's in Norway. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and uh, Josh, thank you for that. <laughs> That's a little over the top, but uh, he goes on and says, I know you probably won't be able to read this email, hence I made it purposely short in order to heighten my chances of getting my mail across. And uh, by the way, thanks for doing that, Espen. Uh, as you guessed, I usually don't get around to the really long life story kind of emails, uh, not because I'm not interested, uh, but because I, I just don't have that much time to allocate to email these days. Anyhow, Espen goes on. There are two points I would like to bring to your attention. It would be interesting to hear what you think of the work of Paul Stamets, who has some great lectures of hope on how mushrooms can save the world, etc., he knew Terence McKenna for the last couple of years, as I have come to understand it. Well, uh, actually, uh, I have had the pleasure of uh, meeting Paul on several occasions, including the great mushroom conference that he organized in 1991, and uh, photos of which are on one of my websites, I think. But in my opinion, uh, Paul is one of the top two or three fungi experts in the whole world, and uh, his TED Talk is uh, one of the best of that series, uh, I think. However, uh, several years ago, uh, Paul made kind of a break with the psychedelic community in order to focus better on his work with the government where they're neutralizing toxic waste, uh, like mustard gas, with uh, some of the mushroom species that Paul has worked with. And so I want to respect his wishes and uh, not link him too tightly to the psychedelic community. Now that said, uh, if you're only going to buy one book about psychedelic mushrooms, Paul's book uh, titled Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World is uh, sort of the gold standard in that field, I think. But uh, let me get back to Espen's email. He goes on, The Amanita muscaria mushroom has received little notice in the salon, and I was wondering why this is so. 
probably the easiest psychedelic mushroom to find, yet very few lectures are given on this mushroom. Well, uh, Espen, your kind words have made me blush, and uh, that isn't easy to do. But in regards to the Amanita muscaria mushroom, what little I know about it actually uh, does come from Paul Stamets. I can still remember his uh, <laughs> really hilarious story about an experiment he did with uh, Amanita one time, and uh, I hope that one day we can get him to tell it in public. But the most important bit of information he gave us about that particular species was that, at least at the time, he thought this, and that was uh, what he saw as a very uneven distribution of the psychoactive ingredients in the Amanita. As I recall, he said that there may be cases where you could eat three quarters of one of them without any effects at all, but the last quarter was a doozy. Now, uh, as I just said, I don't know if this holds true across the board, but it does point out the fact that this particular variety of mushroom is one of the trickiest to use. So be very careful out there if your research takes you in that direction. I've never worked up the courage to try them myself. Uh, in fact, I'm perfectly content to just look at them in the new 3D version of Alice in Wonderland that's about to come out. <laughs> I guess uh, my courage is waning in my older years, huh? Well, that'll do it for now, and so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where the program notes are for... Uh, this uh, podcast and if you're uh, interested in the philosophy behind the psychedelic salon you can hear all about it in my novel the genesis generation which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us and for now this is lorenzo signing off from cyberdelic space be well my friends Music.